Welcome to the Enabled Disabled Podcast. I'm your host, Gustavo Serafini. I was born with a rare physical disability called PFFD. My journey has been about self-acceptance, persistence, and adaptation. On the show, we'll explore how people experience disability, how the stories we tell ourselves can both enable and disable, how vulnerability is the foundation for strength, and why people with disabilities can contribute more than we imagine. I hope that leaders, companies, clinicians, families, and friends will better understand our capacity to contribute to the world and help enable us to improve it. Bob Cullen is an improviser, actor, comedian, business coach, and possibly the most interesting man you might never have heard of in the Western Hemisphere. Bob was trained in improvisation by Del Close, Matt Besser, Amy Poehler, Tina Fey, Susan Messing, and others at Chicago's Improv Olympic Theater, was trained by Mick Napier at the Annoyance Theater, and taught and mentored by Martin DeMatt at the Second City. Talk with Bob was different for this podcast, but it opened some interesting doors that neither of us have explored. We get to learn about improv, how it helps us communicate, and Bob got to explore questions around disability and comedy and how the improv skills he teaches to business leaders can help them have more open conversations around disability. I hope you can feel Bob's enthusiasm and energy. He speaks with his whole body, which you'll see when the YouTube clips are released. It's refreshing to meet people like Bob who are open-minded, funny, and committed to helping to teach us how to understand each other just a little bit better. If you're enjoying the show, please share it with a friend, family member, colleague, somebody on your social media who you think might enjoy it. Sharing is caring, folks. Sharing is how we grow, how we spread the word, and how more people get to understand, contribute, and have their voices be heard. Thank you. See you on the next episode. Hey, Bob, thank you so much for being here and joining us. We really appreciate it. It's an honor to have you. Gustavo, the honor is mine. I'm glad to be here. Let's let's chat this thing up. Awesome. So I would like to start out understanding a little bit about this small little topic called humor. Uh, you are an improv artist. Uh, you have been at Second City. You've done, I mean, the fabled Second City. We got to get all the dirt on Second City. Uh, it's cool. Like, right, you can share all that. But I, I want to understand a little bit about humor. Like, what is funny to you? How did you get started with this? Like, how did this take a hold of you and, and where did it go? All right. So th those are great questions. Uh, so uh, I'm going to start with really how I got started in this. And I think like uh, a lot of um, comedians, I got started pretty much at home. You know, I, I can remember vividly sitting uh, in uh, I, on the floor, in the corner, on a wall or underneath the table while my dad and his brother uh, in particular, he's a, he's one of five. So the whole family, yet there's one in particular that he would go back and forth with Uncle Gary and they would just do bits. They would just make each other laugh. And and then when they'd come over, uh, other friends would come over and play cards. You know, it just seemed like it's just so much fun and everyone's having such a good time. And I learned pretty early in school that I was a funny guy. <laughs> and so I'll go to a Billy crystal quote, which is, I wasn't the class clown. I was the class comedian. And that big difference is really the knowledge of and understanding of and desire to have knowledge and understanding of what is funny and when to be funny. And of course, learning along the lines of when not to be funny as well. <laughs> um, so I think, you know, I got my desire to make people laugh uh, at a very early age, and then just came became a student of comedy. I I can recall vividly watching moments of the movie The Jerk. Have you ever seen the movie The Jerk? Yep. 
Steve Martin, I want to say it's somewhere around like 1978 or so, and just replaying singular moments over and over again to try to understand why that was funny. And that was the same with Fletch. That was the same with The Naked Gun. Like, okay, wait a minute. This this was funny here because they actually set that up like four or five, six, seven scenes earlier, 20 minutes earlier. They set up this joke and it paid itself off here. So just kind of the science of comedy became very interesting to me just on my own. And then the it was time to start practicing. And so that led me at 19 to move from downstate Illinois up to Chicago and began studying that in a summer intensive. And I met the person who was my mentor, who would become my mentor. Uh, the person who is credited for creating the Second City Training Center, a man named Martin DeMott, uh, one of the more unrecognized names in comedy, yet he he touched the heart of and comedic soul of hundreds of thousands of improvisers, probably. Just a brilliant man. And um, yeah, that kind of led to me leaving the world of business at the age of 24 and immersing myself in improvisation and cut to 27 years later, I'm talking to you. <laughs> well, there's a lot to cover in between and we'll try to do some of that, but is there a, can you tell us a funny, like a, a good story that you remember of when you tried to be funny and it was just totally the wrong time? Ah, oh, this week. I mean, like <laughs> it happens all the time. And uh, the year, so I can remember uh, at my aunt's funeral, um, I was probably like 10 years old or something like that. And it's super silent. And I, I just, I literally made a fart sound. I was like, my dad, like the look of death that came from this man's eyes. And oh, I got in so much trouble. I uh, like, okay, timing is everything. This is this is the important because the timing of the joke was spot on. It just wasn't the right time for the joke. And now I have a four year old and seven year old and my seven who's soon to be very soon to be eight. Uh, he is experimenting with comedy. And so is my four year old. They, they do it in very different ways. And I'm impressing upon him the need to really be smart about when he <laughs> he exercises a joke. Because right now. It's not coming out at good times. <laughs> Usually, like I, in the house, there's tension and the emotions are like escalating. And then he's like, "Banger for front or wrong?" Like, no, no. <laughs> <laughs> it's it's interesting. I was going to say that, like, how much so much of the temptation to be funny is in those moments of tension, right? It, it just becomes something either either unbearable or there's just this silence that you have to break and. It sounds like your instinct is let me make you laugh because that's better than that's better than the other emotion sometimes, which is, you know, anger, frustration, crying, whatever it is. It's better to laugh. Yes. Yeah, it's true. I can. There was a teacher in high school. Uh, so I was probably like 18. I think it was my senior year. Uh, Mrs. Buzinski, I think it was history that she was teaching. And we were, uh, the classroom was over and uh, on an overpass in between like the metal shop area and the band area or something like that. So you can drive underneath it. And when uh, you were just sitting in class, all you had to do is just start kind of bouncing your feet and you can get the floor to shake a little bit. And um, I would do that quite often in class. And this tension was escalating inside the, the class and I'm doing this and she's telling people not to. And I, she's just really a nice, very nice teacher. She was a really, really, really nice teacher. She was just having a bad day. And I can't remember what I did. And I was like, okay, everybody, just stop it. Something like that. That's just like, obviously it's coming from me. I'm just to blame the other 24 kids in the class. And she just started laughing. She goes, Bob, no matter how bad of a mood I'm in, you'll say something that somehow makes me laugh and feel good. And that was one of those little like key moments of life of like, oh, I like that. I like making people feel good. There's nothing wrong with that. Let's, let's, let's focus on that. Interesting. So when you, when you started to learn like, so what are your, what are your key insights, right? With humor? Like what, what is it that you can do to make, like, why do people laugh? And, and like, there's so many different kinds of humor, right? So there's, there's the, maybe the more, I don't know, uh, graphics. I'm thinking like Richard Pryor, Eddie Murphy. They're really funny. You have the, the, 
for lack of a better term, the British school, you know, it's like the witticisms and the play on words. And then you have all these other things in between. What were you, what kind of humor were you drawn to? I, I think I was drawn most to, well, all humor, really. However, physical humor and observational humor would probably be the two that I was most drawn to and would, uh, I would say, align my comedic choices with the most. Because there's nothing wrong with a good physical bit. You know, that's, that's universal. I've had the opportunity to uh, perform in, in Asia, for example, and I was performing for an audience that, was, that spoke Mandarin. And I don't know Mandarin. Yet what I know is if in a silent scene, which is what I chose to do, I could do things that are universal, eat, drink, sit, you know, uh, grab writing instruments, whatever it is, that, that, that translates culture, you know, from one culture to the next culture. It, trans, it, it transcends um, language as well. That is the language. And so I think that's where my base is. And people laugh for all sorts of reasons. You, see, you said it before, sometimes laugh, laughter takes place when there's just so much tension. And something happens and somehow it just eases the the sort of the pressure cooker, right? The air gets let out a little bit and it's cathartic. And sometimes it's physical stuff and sometimes it's observational stuff and sometimes it's it's political and sometimes it's social and um, satirical. And, you know, it, it comes – here's the great thing about it, though. It's subjective. You know, what's funny to you may not be funny to me. And what's funny to me might be, and I'm going to be very careful with this one when I say offensive to somebody else, because I don't mean it. Like, I don't fall into, like, the blue humor, which is what you mentioned, some of those, like Andrew Dice Clay, if you recall that comedian, he was like, you know, hickory dickory duck. And you're like, the punchline (laughs) is going to rhyme with the word dock, and you know it's coming. And that can turn a lot of people off. It didn't turn me off. I didn't turn, it didn't like get me excited either though. I wasn't like, Oh yeah. I wasn't the biggest dice clay fan. So you find your own voice in there and then the audience finds its own choices as well. And so what comedically, what I always try to do is just, you know, perform at the top of my intelligence and do the best I can to support everybody else on, on stage and then just let the comedy come from committing to the reality as opposed to trying to be funny. Gotcha. Is that why you were drawn to improv more than stand-up? I was drawn to improv more than stand-up for a lot of reasons. So when I was 19, I left a town called Effingham, Illinois, in downstate Illinois, which, you know, since we're talking about comedy, that name on its own has its own series of jokes that come with it. And went up and stayed on my cousin's floor in Chicago, my cousin John, and learned from Martin DeMott. And from the like first class, I was like, oh, this is what I'm supposed to be doing. This is like, I had that real, like, this is my blood. This is like my skin. This is easy and hard. It's hard. It's easy though. Like there's the core part of it was like, oh man, this is what I'm supposed to be doing. And I think that that kind of calling in life is rare and wonderful. And I think that for me, the difference between stand-up, which is rehearse, rehearse, rehearse the same thing over and over again, and improv is the multifold, the joy of creation. You know, it's cool to create in front of an audience. So the risk is there as well. Like they they pay money to watch some entertainment, and preferably it should be funny on top of that, or at the very least, thought-provoking. So there's some stakes attached to it as well. It's also ensemble based. And I like the team. I like the fact that you have you are responsible for other people on your stage or at least getting their backs and they're responsible for getting your back as well. I also like the, the pure romantic nature of improvisation in so much that it's created in real time in the moment and you experience the moment exactly for what it is and then it's gone. And you either, you either did experience it or were able to grasp it and enjoy it or you didn't. And either way, you can't replicate it. You cannot bring that scene back. You know, if you try to bring that scene back, typically it fails because the chemistry is different from one show to the next. The audience is different. And also veteran improvisers will, will scold you for like doing a bit too many times or doing a character too many times, you know, especially where I come from in Chicago, it's, it's organic improv is what we're going for. 
And I became one of those grizzled vets too. Like, like, Oh, you're doing some stand up now. Is that what you're doing? Oh, you know, kind of condescendingly giving notes to improvisers who are like, Oh, I saw you do that bit last week. It's good. <laughs> like, you know, like, you know, no one wants those types of notes, which I got as well. You know, you, you test things. Um, but yeah, it's, it's, you live in the moment or you missed it and either way you can't bring it back. So there's something cool about that. So when you were at, I went to second city a couple, a couple of times when I was in college, loved it for people who never experienced it. Is there a bit that you remember that like, that was really funny. How would you go from like, you say like the next day is something different. The next day is something different. So when you got on stage the next day is just, you know, different bits are being thrown at you. Like, how did, how does that work? What, what was that? What did that look like? Why could you never repeat it again? Yeah. All right. So I want to put in context, a couple of things, the second city, as well as my position in there, just so that we have some clarity there. So the second city, Chicago is the nucleus for improvisation and sketch comedy in the world. It's where the modern incarnations of improvisation came from. It dates back to the 1920s and thirties. Um, and then evolved uh, slowly through between there in the 70s and 80s when Del Close kind of kicked it in. And um, I was fortunate to learn of that improv legend as well and work with him. And uh, Chicago has a lot of great institutions. So when I think about my time in Chicago, improv and sketch comedy, it's not just the Second City, which is the mothership of all of this. It's also the Improv Olympic, otherwise known as I.O., or the Great Annoyance Theater um, with uh, Mick and Jen at the, the helm there. You know, these great improv theaters that have different styles as well that you have to honor and respect the forms inside of it, the styles inside of it. The Second City, though known for improvisation, is really sketch comedy once you get to the stages more than improvisation. And the sketch comedy is derived from the improvisation, yet the 90 minutes or so of solid entertainment is sketch with maybe a little improv woven in there. And then they do an improv scene or um, improv show at the end, a free show at the end of the night. Um, For me... Whether it's there or any of those other the great theaters, the Annoyance or I.O., you get – there's different styles, like I said. So the Second City, once you get to the improv set, it's – and my my position there, I was part of their training center. I was the first core faculty of their training center, so I rose to the, pretty much the highest rank possible there. I toured for them. I've done some directing for them. And on the main stage, I was a, an understudy for about a year. So never got my own show there. Never got the big the big stage alone yet. You know, as a bench warmer in the show, I was still there. I was still there. So what do you get in the improv set? You get a suggestion and then you do a scene. And that scene kind of concludes with somebody pulling the lights. At the time I was there, a great guy named Craig was pulling the lights. He pulled them down. Uh, then you come back out there and get another suggestion. Then you do another scene. So it's it's not short form like Whose Lines in any way where you're playing these improv games. It's just sort of vignettes that would capture it all. Occasionally we would do some long form improvisation where you get one suggestion phone and go for like 25 minutes, just organically creating. That was really more IO and annoyance, much more in different ways, organic creation in those two theaters. than once you get to the main stage, because once you get to the main stage, they structure it in such a way that you're positioned to succeed. And that's because it's known, its brand is enormous and the audience wants you to succeed and they're paid, paid to watch you succeed as well. And the talent's there as well. It's not to dismiss that in any capacity. It's just structured very differently. So it was all like single suggestion, bit, single suggestion, scene, single suggestion, figure out how to work with this thing and, and then just run those shows in that way. Interesting. Is there a bit that you remember as being something you were really you know, something that was really memorable, it stuck in the memory or something that you saw that was just, just amazed you, or is it just because of its very nature, it doesn't really work that way. It's just funny night in and night out. It, the, the very nature of it, especially when you do uh, a buddy of mine, Joe Canale, and I was his understudy. He was the one on the main stage performed with Joe a lot. And somewhere around 10 years ago, we were just kind of estimating based on uh, in the early days in Chicago, we were creating nights of the week. I mean, we weren't alone. There was a good handful of us, like let's say 15 people or so, just like like 
creating forms, creating nights of the week, creating legendary stuff that every improviser out there is like, oh, I know what the jam is. I know what the cage match is. We were the first cage match teams. We were the first jam. All this great stuff that we were just developing um, and helping create. Uh, we determined about 10 years ago that we had passed 4,000 live shows. Oh. And those range anywhere from like a 15-minute set to a 90-minute improvised musical. You know, it's just like tons and tons and tons. So over the course of that time, and of course, another 10 years on top of that, who knows how many shows I've done in that period of time. They blend together. They blur. I can remember once uh, in one of the sets, I was with Brad Morris and I think um, Michael Patrick O'Brien and um, I think... uh, who else was sitting in on Jed or Holly? I can't remember all the people on the stage. I just remember there was one physical bit with chairs. Like we just kept getting tangled in chairs and just like trying to move around. The chairs were like attacking us. And you get these little like moments where you're like, oh, that was great. That was fun. And then in some of the longer form stuff, you can remember more vividly like the show or show titles. Yet it all just blurs together as one giant, wonderful memory. Mm. How long, how long did it take you to feel enough confidence, right, to improvise like that just on the moment and know that something was going to, something good was going to come out of it? Because that has to be like, you know, I, I don't know. Some people have, I'm assuming there's no stage fright. You guys are over, you guys and girls are over that. Like you're, you're seasoned enough, but to come in night in, night out and just, here's a suggestion, here's a scene, run with it. Like, I don't know, like, have, do you know what happens when you just can't think of anything or nothing comes out? All right. Well, I think, Gustavo, you're asking a couple of questions there. One is, when did I, um, I have the confidence to do that? And that was instantly. That was like, oh, I love this. I'm born to do this thing. Confidence and skill level are two different things, though. So I can recall, like, I, re- I remember vividly my first long form show. And long form, uh, this was at the Improv Olympic or I.O., I don't remember what the suggestion was. I remember the group that we were opening for, though. And I can remember it not being a very good show. You know, I'm raw. I'm very nervous slash excited. So not nervous. I don't want to do this. I'm not having an anxiety attack. I'm just like, you know, that's my first show. Ah." (laughs) You know, it's just like the, the mind doesn't link with the mouth and you're missing parts. It's very different than once you really get the reps in and get very experienced and then Sometimes you're still nervous or excited, and that's typically like you're playing for the I.O. 25th anniversary party. There's like a show, rather. It's at the, the famed Chicago Theater, like, you know, the, the one with the, the Chicago sign where it's spelled Chicago down. It's like in half the postcards. It's, you know, it's it's on TV shows or movies. It's all, it's it's just quintessential Chicago. And it's like 3,000 or maybe 3,500 seat theater. Maybe it's like 3,800. I don't know. Somewhere between three and 4,000 seat theater. It's a big event. And so you, you're, yeah, you're pumped up and you're nervous yet. You're like, it's more like game, let's go. Let you start getting in the zone and getting really excited about this. And that comes from reps. That just comes from over time. It comes from experience. It comes from failure as well, you know? And so you mentioned like those times that you get on stage and there's nothing there. It happens. It, ha- I mean, especially like 4,000 shows, yeah, there's a failure rate inside of that. You know, you're never, it's, It's not like baseball. If you bat 300, you're going to go to the Hall of Fame. So three out of 10 times at the plate, you get a hit. It's not like that. If you bat 300 in improv, you're you're not going to be part of a great improv ensemble. You got to be closer to nine and a half times out of 10. Yet that still means like you're going to fail every once in a while. Maybe it's even 9.9 times out of 10. There's still failure. And the earlier in your career there are, the more failure there is. And then you figure out how to do it. And then burnout. Burnout happens. Everybody gets burned out. Improv legend. She was my coach for a long time. Susan Messing was like, you're going to burn out. You're, you will burn out. It's a matter of time. It will happen. And sure. And I was like, oh yeah, sure, sure, sure. You know, I'm already five years into this. I'm doing, you know, eight shows a week and just like over and over and over again. I'm missing holidays and family stuff just to, just to perform for free over and over and over again. You hit your wall and you're, I never felt like I was done. I always felt like I called improv for some reason, a lady, like lady improv will tell me when it's time to stop dancing. There's been a couple of times in the last 27 years that I wondered, I was like, I'm really tired. 
I'm very tired of performing at a high level. It's a young person's game. And though there are people like me who are like even five, six, 10 years, my senior who are still performing. And I plan to be that person as well. Like where all the young people are like, either they're in awe of that person or they're just like, go away. Why are you still here? (laughs) You don't make money doing this, you know? And both are okay as well. Yet you will burn out. It will happen again and again and again. And so really what we focus on is stretching those times out between your your one bad show and your next bad show or your one burnout and the next burnout and then developing tips and tricks and um, ideas on how to get out of that burnout. So resilience is in the DNA of a professional improviser. And then there's also, I would imagine, just the rush of being on stage, of oh, yeah. being with this incredible group of, of people and performing this way and just the, the excitement of the crowd, right? That has to be what, what keeps you going. It's one of them. Yeah. Yeah. And so for anybody out there who's like, at least doesn't know Chicago improv, what you get in Chicago improv is a stage and chairs. That's all you have on uh, to work with. And then people. The other people in your team who become very important because the chairs don't give you a whole lot. So it's all about working with each other. So that rush of being in front of a live audience, that rush of like conducting an audience, like it's maybe the show is just really rough opening. And then you do something that, that becomes the catalyst for the audience getting on board or the team getting re-energized. And again, it's not that you're the star. You're just like, all it needs is like one little thing, one little domino to get knocked over. And then you can find your rhythm as an ensemble and you feed over or somebody else does it. And you're like, Oh, that's what we're looking for. And you just kind of get on board and doing it as a team as well. I mean, that's so important. The ensemble is so important. The team is so important. And that's part of it, you know, showing up for each other with each other and doing it. And regardless of what the audience is like, you know, some people will blame the audience if it was a, you think you did a good show and it's just a bad audience. Sometimes, sometimes it's the audience. Rarely though. I would always say, look in the mirror, look at each other. What did you do differently? Was your warm up a crap warm up and you just didn't get in the zone? You didn't get connected before the show? Were you stressed out? Were you pandering to the audience? And they were like, don't, don't placate us you know we're a smart audience or were you talking down to the audience you know like oh, there's so many things that could turn an audience including what the ensemble is doing and then sometimes you do it right and the audience is still like no <laughs> like, why why so yeah and that fa- i mean that's part of it as well right that, that chance that failure is ever present in improvisation on a stage you know it's it's just it's part of the ensemble, really. And so there's something cool about that, too, of having to thread needles in real time while stitching somebody up in front of an audience that either wants you to succeed or wants you to fail or doesn't care, and you have to turn them one way or another. Right. But you can break that that fourth <laughs> wall, so to speak, with the audience, right? Because you're engaging with them. You're interacting with them. It's not like you're it's not there's the veil is very very thin right so there's there's more chances to turn them to to interact with them to engage with them yeah yeah you can it's got to be done right though because if you don't do it right there there's where it seems like you're pandering and you definitely don't want to do that i can remember once and i don't remember the specific a bit um peter gwynn though great improviser part of baby wants candy um, founding member like me, Baby Wants Candy does hour long, completely improvised musicals with a full band. And I cannot remember what the bit was. It was super funny though. And it was really dark and he hits this bit and the audience groans at him and we're in a scene together. I'm on stage with him and we're talking, the audience grows and he looks at the audience like, really? <laughs> really? And then just turns back to me and goes right back into the scene. The audience was like, yeah, we are dumb. Or not, not, not the audiences are dumb. They're like, we're wrong. We're wrong. And like, they came back on board. So it happened. Like, you, can, you can break that fourth wall correctly, and it's great. And you can also break the fourth wall incorrectly, and it stinks. Um, I'm, 
I think the audience is wondering where the tie-in is going to be, and I'm going to get there in a second. But just one more selfish question. I'm going to put it this way. When you are in a room, just privately, backstage, or just hanging out with a bunch of other comedians, what's that like? Like, is it, do you experiment on each other? You know, is it just everybody trying to make each other laugh or you all just kind of just relax sometimes and just, you know, like everybody else, like what, what does that look like? Uh, well, every group is different and improvisers are unique. Ultimately, we're people. So let's start there. You know, if a team really cares about each other, I mentioned Baby Wants Candy before. We were a family, a somewhat dysfunctional family. <laughs> we were, we, you know, uh, a lot of families are dysfunctional. So we still love each other and care about each other. And sometimes before shows, like something bad happens and we get each other's back. We hug each other and get people in the zone. Uh, a lot of times we're just trying to get our get focused and get aligned with our energy so bits are flying and popping and people are acting really ridiculous. If it's a big show like the Chicago theater one I mentioned, we're, we're kind of like really locking in with each other and getting on point. There's another group I mentioned, Joe, before, uh, Joe Canale. Um, there's a, a third person, Bob Scoopy, and the three of us uh, essentially were the core of Weaselicious that had a, just a wonderful, really great so not supporting cast. That's not alternating cast. Like it was like a revolving door of talent that came in. And um, before those gigs were typically just like uh, anything that could like get each other, including like front tapping genitals, like bam. <laughs> so you're like, you're like, it's kind of like blocking and like it, just do whatever it takes just to kind of like get aligned with each other. Uh, afterwards though, that's really when the, the bits start popping especially if like it's a good show and you go to the bar afterwards, then anybody who's in earshot, just just sit back and watch that show. Watch the, It's like the belly of the beast. Awesome. Uh, that, that would, that would be a, an amazing experience. I would, I would pay to be a fly on the wall at, at one of those bars. Um, I think it's, I think so. I want to first start to tie in and I want to get into what you're doing now and why you're doing it. Cause I think it's, really interesting and important, but how do you approach, you know, humor and disability? Because in my, in my experience, right? Like I don't usually joke about it. I've joked about it before. I remember being in college. Um, and so I, I have one arm. And so when I, whenever I would wear a long sleeve shirt, a sweater, a jacket, the right sleeve was essentially, you know, sewed in. So there was only one, one sleeve. And, you know, I walked into the dorm room and we're all hanging out and somebody says, you know, anybody see my sweater? I think somebody took it by accident. I don't know. And I just just naturally, just without even thinking about it, I said, look, you don't have to worry about me. Right. And I just kind of, you know, put my hand up and, you know, everybody started laughing. And then like three seconds later, I think my friend turned to me and said, never say that again. <laughs> right. <laughs> so, so it was it was that was an interesting experience of. Can I joke about it? You know, when are those jokes appropriate? And, you know, why are people so sensitive to it when it's done? You know, it, it's not done necessarily, even self-deprecating humor is okay sometimes, right? So it's not done in a mean-spirited way. It's not done in a way to look down on anybody else. It's, it's, it was an observational humor that in my, in my experience, in my feeling, I want my friends to be able to laugh about that openly and not feel bad about that. Where, where do you kind of, where do you kind of see that? Like, where can we introduce humor and just laugh at ourselves? It's okay to laugh at ourselves. It's okay to laugh at certain things that we do that, that are funny, even if it is related to disability. That's, that's my take. How do you, how do you feel about that? I, I feel that there needs to be sensitivity around that. You know, and I think there that sensitivity has to be based in respect and empathy. And I think that if you go through the history of comedy, there's been a lot of comedy over the decades that's done at the expense of other people. And I think that's that becomes very, very dangerous, if not even insulting. And I think the the sensitivity that we have really does have to come from that core issue. So for me, you know, with my base of sort of observational and com uh, physical comedy, 
it does not have to be at the expense of somebody else. It typically is at the expense of me. And so uh, expanding this to anyone really out there, I would say that you got to know your audience, first of all. Your audience it could be a dorm room full of people having some beers, or it could be, um, I think in our last conversation, I said with Baby Wants Candy specifically, we had a sort of this focus of you don't go to a church and do a frat show. You don't go to a frat and do a church show. They're very different audiences. We might still be doing hour-long completely improvised musicals, yet the audience is different. So we better play the toward that audience. Again, not pander. We're playing to honor and respect the audience. So I would extend that to this as well, that there has to be levels of comfort and understanding and right place, right time, especially if it's at your own expense, then I, I bet, you know, bellies are laughing and people are falling on the floor. And otherwise, I think there has to be an opportunity to experiment and an opportunity to test humor out. And that's got to be done in a safe environment as well. And so with all of that, um, I'll, I'll go back to empathy and respect. And if that's there, then game on. Hmm. So, right. And that's not a joke that I would make to, you know, strangers walking into a room that I'm first meeting, right? That was a group of, a group of friends who knew me at least for, I think it was a couple months and, you know, we were relatively comfortable with each other. And so you make, you can make, you can make those jokes. Um, but that's interesting. So when you're doing an improv skit, you know, did that, did that ever come up? Like, let's, you know, uh, Somebody for, you know, did disability ever get factored in, did put into that skit in any way? I, well, there's yes ands to that in so much that um, when you're trying to run as fast as you can and hard as you can, you're willing to pretty much do anything on stage. And I would say in the mid nineties, there's probably lines that you can't cross in the early 2020s. And I think that's appropriate. I think ultimately, um, you know, if there's a pendulum, we were like one way I said before, like you go to the history of comedy, they're, they're doing things that should not be done now. And so the pendulum was already all the way over here for a long time and it swung this way. And I don't know if it swung equal to this side or not. However, I think ultimately we're going to find where it sits in the middle that is based in honor and respect and integrity and inclusion as well, because it should not be at the expense of anyone else. I will tell you one of my favorite shows in the last um, half a decade anyway, maybe it's, maybe it's closer to a decade, Micah Sherman and Dan Hodap in New York. When I left Chicago and moved to New York, they had this great show called The Scene. And The Scene was essentially a one-act play. You're on stage, and they, they did it in sort of the barest, most naked rules of improvisation you get one character in this one act play and the play is going to last 25 to 30 minutes, something like that. And you're not allowed to do well, they encourage no devices, no multiple characters. So it's just pure you in the moment as this character with other people being in the moment as these characters. And based on the suggestion from the audience, and I can't remember what it was, I chose to play somebody who was knocking on death's door in a hospital. And I was essentially, uh, the only thing I could move was my head and my mouth and talk. And so I stayed on stage the whole time being as still as possible. And that was interesting because it, I, I had a relative that, that happened to fairly recently. And so for me, after it was done, though it was not intentional, that's what I kept thinking about. It became a, a blend of being cathartic and I, I was very introspective for a long time after that. Like, you know, just trying to picture in different lines. And I think there's smart comedy in there too, where people are willing to step over without stepping on. And at the same time, reflective afterwards to question if they did the job correctly. I mean, if they, if they actually, and I'll go back to that, that, that new quote of mine, you know, really, trying to push the envelopes, you know, step over and, and not step on people at the same time. Yeah, I, I agree. I think there was uh, I mean, I remember being liking some of that humor. I mean, I still do to a certain extent, but it's also, 
it's it it's also it feels cheap and easy, right? Like it's so it's so easy to just it's almost like you're picking on someone, right? Something that they can't change, something that they're it's part of who they are, and it just it doesn't it doesn't come across the right way. Yeah. Um, but and I also, think right. Go ahead. What I was gonna say for that that one though, going back to the that specific show, it's all about relationship, relationship, relationship. So at no time was I playing at the expense of this character in that position. It was all like, it was people saying goodbye to me, you know, coming into the room. So it was all like what effect this character had on other people and witnessing it in a comedy show. Keep in mind, this is supposed to be comedy. But that, that is, that is comedy. That's tragic comedy. That's see, that's beautiful. I, I would have loved to have seen that because that, no, that's the opposite of what I, what I was just talking about. But I think we look like, with your example of the, you know, your analogy of the pendulum swinging, I think we've also lost the ability to experiment and broaden those horizons, right? Like there is humor to be found in, in all aspects of life, as long as we do it in the right way. Maybe what we need are more comedians with disabilities out there sharing their, right? Sharing their experiences, sharing their stories, sharing what's funny. So we can all, we can all learn from that and enjoy that. Absolutely. Yeah, we don't see a lot of that. Did you watch any of America's Got Talent in the last few years? No. So there was two comedians in particular that come to mind. One, um, and I don't know their names, so please forgive me out there. Uh, One had Tourette's or has Tourette's. And he went to, I think he was top five, I think. I think, I think. And the other one um, was born with um, challenges with his, not challenges, just differences in his arms. So, um, uh, and he rose to, I don't, he may have even won it, you know, because it was based on comedy. And to your point, he did bring up, he did pull some self-deprecating humor out there as well. Um, and so I think the more we see it, the more we get sensitized to it or in the, in the positive way, desensitized that I think part of the challenge is that we don't look at everybody the same and we should, cause we all do the same things. We, we eat, we breathe, we cry, we laugh, we love, we die, you know? And so when we all just say, look at each other and say, yep, we're all, we're all here. We're here on earth for my dollar. That could go a long way across the board in the world, let alone in America, let alone in comedy. Yep. Yeah, or just yeah, just looking at the absurdities of life, the observations, the things that we all share, or the way we see things differently. I think it's really interesting, and there's a big, big space there that's open for that. Um, which I think, hopefully, I'm gonna, hopefully, we see more of that. But you, let's transition into what you're doing now, because I think there's, there's a lot to be said there. You are using your improvisational skills as a business consultant. So how did that get started and what, what made you, you know, go that route? All right. So uh, my formal degree is in business and it's an undergrad degree. Uh, what I've always said, I, I have a BS in business. That's appropriate in many ways. Uh, and I was actually good at business as a young 20-something-year-old. And um, left that to really dive into improvisation and just submerge myself in it. And cut to five years later, I have the opportunity to co-create the first improv program anywhere in the entire world in any business school that focused solely on linking improvisation to business. And that was at the Duke Fuqua School of Business. And from there, I formed a company called Business Improv and um, really focus on showing people how to use the tenets of improvisation that would otherwise be used to produce comedy in a way to communicate with each other, collaborate with each other, connect with each other, engage each other, bring personality out, which is different than humor. It's, you know, just bring a little bit more of yourself out. And then how do you actually move that to leadership skills or sales skills? And so that's the focus. We root it in the behavioral sciences. So really behavioral psychology, cognitive psychology, behavioral economics even, org theory, how and why we make decisions in real time. And so we take high energy exercises and then pin them down with the behavioral sciences and then focus on application. And so that's been my my day job when my night job, which 
doesn't pay or very pays, pays only every once in a while, uh, getting people up on stage and laughing. So how did you, how did you come up with that idea? Like what was the spark? It was the, the fact that I was a, I got my undergrad degree in business and I was a good business person and I was pretty successful. I won a Bank of America award for creative marketing, for guerrilla marketing. And so you kind of get that in your blood. And then um, I loved improv. Love, I still love it. Love it, love it, love it. And so the idea of just marrying the two of them uh, was not mine. The, there's a lot of theaters in the, the 90s that were doing corporate improv and I was teaching for some of those theaters. And what I kept hearing is, you know, this, this is great. Participants would say this is great as they're leaving, except I can't use any of this. And so now I have to go back to work and make up the work that I missed because I, I, can't, I was forced to come here because my boss told me to and for this team building event. And that, that really made me feel bad. It made me feel like I was uh, selling snake oil. And so when I had this opportunity, which was just serendipity, right place, right time, recognizing the opportunity and then jumping on it. I said, I know how to do this. I know how to put these two together. And the first program I created was a five-day, 36-hour intensive, linking improvisation to business. So I took something I was good at and I great respect for and even love business and married it with my passion. And here we are. So what can you share? Obviously, I'd like to take the program at some point, and I'm sure other people would too. So what are some of the tenants that you can share? Like, where do they translate? I heard you talk a lot in the beginning of the conversation about how important the team was, feeding off each other's other's energy, picking each other up, you know, uh, working with each other and trusting each other. I'm imagining that that's, that's a big part of it. What else am I missing? Yeah. Yeah. I was going to say right there, like, where does that not apply anywhere, let alone in business? Uh, So we define improvisation in business improv, my company, and this is unique to us. We define it on improvisation on three core competencies, which is reacting, adapting, and communicating. Reacting, adapting, communicating. Reacting is focus and concentration and presence. Adapting is if you're doing it within parameters or trying to achieve an outcome. So think like sales, for example, or collaboration, a team meeting, a shifting strategy to, you know, this crazy stuff around us and then communicating, talk, 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 talk. So based on those three core competencies, my question is similar to what I just said to you regarding how you described improv, where don't you use those? When is that not applicable in specifically business for that matter as well? So we teach people then how to take on those core competencies, which everyone's, you know, if you ask anybody, is reacting and adapting important? They're going, yeah, absolutely. It is. is communicating important? Yeah. Then the question is, well, how are you doing it? And so when you look at improvisation, especially, you know, with your background and have seen so much of it, what we do on stage starts with focus and concentration and presence, you know, in the moment at a very, very high level. And then that adaptability and communication comes from caring about your team, your ensemble that you just broke down so accurately. It's also rooted in this idea of postponing judgment or the improv term is suspending judgment of like when somebody brings an idea to the table, don't judge it and definitely don't shoot it down. You take it for what it is and do something with it. You can build directly on it in a heightening type of way comedically. You can uh, take it and honor and respect it and just hold it close to your heart you know, it might not be funny, yet you're still honoring what somebody else gave to you. And it comes from this idea that whatever anybody else says is, if not as important as what you're saying, it's more important than what you're saying. So words become gold and you don't just give gold to whoever, you don't just throw gold away. You give it to specific people to specific reasons, for specific reasons. And if words are gold, you don't, if somebody tries to hand you gold, Gustavo, you're not going to be like, no, I don't want your gold. Yeah, you're going to be like, yeah, thank you. Yes. And I'm going to take it and I'm going to treasure it and do something with it. And that's the same. So this is how important communication becomes on an improv stage. And that's so relevant to how we build relationships, whether we're on site with each other or we're virtual with each other. It's all about that connection and engagement. And it's interesting, right? Because when are we taught in school to communicate? When are we taught in school how to adapt? When are we taught? We're not, we're not taught those things, at least not directly. We sort of learn haphazardly through failing, through experiences, through our interactions with others. But this is like, 
to me, I would I would argue this is important for junior high school kids to learn, for high school kids to learn. It's not just for business, right? This is for life. It is. It is. And this is one of those great work-life blends because what we teach specifically in business improv is people skills and human connection. And so when you talk about this collaborative communication style, uh, wouldn't you want that with your roommates? Wouldn't you want that with your significant other, your partner, children, parents, parents, (laughs) right? (laughs) Right. You know, it's so important and it's fundamental to who we are as people. Yet, as you said, there's not a whole lot of training in it. And really the, the approaches in improvisation on its own create a high level of training. And then once you start honing it and fine tuning it and crafting it to a specific audience for specific reasons, like we've, like we've done in 21 years, then it becomes masterclass work. Yep. I can see that. And fun, fun master on top of that too. Let's be really clear. Yeah, because most of the time when you're, I, I mean, so I, I have a small business and we have a pretty close knit team and we joke around with each other a lot, but it's also, there's always that kind of underlying competition of ideas. You know, it's like, no, like I'm right, or this idea is better. And it's so easy to lose sight of being present in that moment and that the, what the other person is saying is more important. It's so, it's like you need a constant reminder of, no, what they're saying is actually gold. Let me treat it that way. The problem is I don't recognize it that way. I'm trying to give you my gold instead. And then we get into this conflict and we and we don't understand each other. Yeah. Yeah. So you actually just hit another positive outcome of using these tools and techniques, and that's conflict management. You know, and that comes from, you know, let's start with entering into dif- difficult conversations uh, respectfully with the idea of like, settling this in some mutual way and also being in it where a lot of people will disengage, think about what they're going to say next is why well, I have a point that's going to negate your point. So we start protecting our own ideas while we're trying to undermine somebody else's ideas, as opposed to saying, all right, we're heated right now. We're going to get into it. Cause we all get into it. Let's be clear as well. Anybody who's like, no, I never get in an argument with anybody, <laughs> whatever. You know, you, that person probably is trying to sell you a bridge. We all get it. And life is tricky, you know. So when this type of stuff happens and we're just, you know, rubbing on each other, there's a lot of friction. Let's take 10 minutes or half an hour or an hour or revisit this tomorrow morning. All right. Let's step away from this, get a glass of cold water or beer or, you know, just go for a walk, air it out, you know, just decompress a little bit, then come back in and say, all right, let's work to solve this. Let's do this in a collaborative way. And in that spirit of like in a Venn diagram, right? This is you argument point, my argument point. There's got to be a middle ground, right? There's got to be this this place in the middle that exists. And there's where these techniques thrive. So what do you what do you think that what's the most, you know, impressive outcome so far out of all the companies that you worked with like what's been the biggest turnaround story and you can give us like i know you probably have ndas etc but what's been that that moment where you just said wow this this really worked and this really changed something in this culture for for the better that's that you just hit the key word right there the things that we do really well uh in business improv is help people create structure for longevity So culture and watching, I can remember specifically is a big pharma and there's a specific branch of this and they're really veteran, very veteran, big pharma, high ranking individuals who, if you get to that place, it's not just status and rank that you have, you have experience. And typically it comes with a fair amount of, I'll politely say confidence. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, and there's a lot of confident people who think that they're right. And when that happens in one room and one team, there's a lot of people who stop listening to each other because they think they're right and other people are wrong. And so the conflict is then underlying. It's not even brought out, you know? So then it's, it's like water cooler, cooler chatter behind the back chatter, that type of stuff. So going in there and working with them, this was a longer engagement, many, many months. Uh, we flipped them. 
we flipped that team uh, from being a highly dysfunctional team to being a highly functional team. Uh, so much so that we got a lot of recognition for that. And a lot of eyes were on us after that. And we brought, we got brought in for a lot of other very sticky, very tricky type of programs. So that was, yeah, sorry. that's, that's fun. But I'm, I mean, I, what's coming to mind now is so you believe it feels like you believe that people can change. People can have their attitudes, their perceptions, their minds changed and see things in a different way than they, than they did before. Yes. Now you can't change people though. People have to want to change. Yeah. There's gotta be some kind of drive to do it. In this case, it was senior, the most senior person, the team who brought us in. So she mandated that this is the path that we're going to follow. And these are the people who are going to help us on this path to both navigate treacherous terrain and support us with the, you know, learning how to drive this vehicle. I don't know. I'm going to continue down this analogy, I guess. However, uh, that, that is a way to help change take place. And if the people are truly resistant to change, that's so hard. That's impossible. So there has to be some level of intrinsic desire to change. And it could be motivated with, you know, external influences, your job, for example, your job is changing. So you should adapt so that you keep your job (laughs) so that you increase your probability of getting promoted and get your bonuses and all of that sexy stuff. That's, that's true. Uh, On an individual basis though, you have to want it. You have to want to do this. So if you don't have that external influence, extrinsic motivation, you need intrinsic motivation. And if you don't have that, then you're not, you're not going to change. You're, you'll be, I, I would, you know, if you're going to really go a zero sum on this, I would put all my money on the fact that people who are not focused on changing aren't going to change because to change, you need tenacity. You need diligence, hard work. You need drive. None of those are easy words. Change is hard. So you need not only to be able to do this for yourself, you need a support team around you. You know, let's go back to the family base. You have to talk, tell your family, I'm trying to change this behavior. So you need accountability practices. When I slip, because I will slip, because I've had this behavior my whole life, you know, I've been passive aggressive my whole life. I'm trying not to be passive aggressive. I need people around me to tell me like, oh, yo, emperor, you are naked. You are, you are buck naked. Put some clothes on. Nobody, nobody wants to see this. No one. You know, so you're like, okay, I got called out. And you, that means you also have to be humble and vulnerable, that you're not going to be right all the time and curious enough to want to get better and develop the foundational skill set for sustainable change. And all of that, you know, it's time, energy, commitment, it's drive, and it's needed for change to take place. It's a big question, and we probably don't have time to go through this, but I think there's a lot to think about here um, in terms of disability, because part of my mission, my goal, is to change the way people perceive and understand what it means and doesn't mean to have a disability. So I believe that that's important, along with everything else, you know, legal stuff, economic incentives. But if we don't, reach people's hearts if we don't get in there and change those perceptions i believe that those other things just become bare minimums that we do in society just because they're there Mm -hmm. but in order to really elevate and change the nature of the game i think we have to go there so um how do how do we help people want to change what conditions do we have to create corporate america and society in general for yeah. for the for these things to start flourishing. Do you have any just initial thoughts on, on what we can do there? Well, the, you know, everybody has opinions, right? And you know, <laughs> everyone's got holes. So yep. um, take it as just grain of salt ideas from an improviser, I guess. Um, with those different ways of doing it, I think if we focus on like consistency of messaging, 
if we're hearing the same messages over and over and over again, you can start turning the tides from people. I think structurally as well, you know, whether uh, the structural could be incentive type of programs. And we talked about this in several of our conversations like that can help ultimately though, if we um, create some, some level of comfort, right. And by that, I, I don't know if I mean like normalization, which that doesn't sound right because it's not, not normal. It's the perception of other people though. Um, just regularity of just like, let's just talk. Let's just always talk to each other. And so I, th- and I think leadership, it's got to come from leadership too, because we all follow the, the leader, walk the talk. And if the leaders are not, you know, they could say one thing and behave a different way then the majority of people are going to behave that way. And so you need that type of like leadership to show like, this is the way that we're going forward. And ultimately guidelines too. Like let's, you heard me say it before, treat each other with respect, dignity, you know, just basic things. It's a Martin DeMont. I mentioned before a quote of his, it's a basic human desire to be understood or at least believe that people understand us. And so if we just go to that core communication of I'm here to connect, I'm here to um, hear, I'm here to learn, you know, then we can all be students of each other. And that might be a way to continue to move forward in a positive way. Yeah. Curiosity, you know, has to be the stronger, the, the stronger desire as opposed to shying away from this is awkward. This is difficult. This is not something I want to deal with. Um, yeah. Yeah. And I think I think the the message that I'm playing with and exploring is based around potential. I think that we are in broad strokes, right? Like this is going to sound grandiose, but I think we are here on this earth to fulfill and test our potential as human beings. What can we do? What can we what can we contribute? What can we what can we do while we're here on earth in this time? Are we making people laugh? Are we making people cry? Are we, are we helping people in some way? Like, what are we doing? Are we building great businesses, but we're doing something. So the more of that potential that we can activate as people, the better off you would think we would be as a society. And I think that the disability community is the largest untapped resource in terms of human potential that we haven't even begun to scratch. And maybe that's true of all humanity, but I see it more poignantly with the disability community. It's just, there's so much there that's just being ignored or kind of tossed to the side that we're just missing out on as, as, as human beings. Yeah. 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 And untapped potential is, it's sad and it's frustrating. You know, when I think about my children, the idea that, that, their talent would and potential would not be fulfilled. It's, it's sad. And so I think with that though, there's opportunity and it's opportunity that I hope more and more people um, at the very least explore, you know, and that goes back to your curiosity. Yep. What have I missed Bob that we haven't talked about that you'd like to, you'd like to tell us Um, that's important. Or interesting. Can I plug something that if anybody out there, you know, we're going to plug away too. Yeah. Let's, let's plug. All right. All right. So if anybody out there is like, okay, I I get what uh, these two jokers are talking about. Um, (laughs) uh, And yeah, maybe this is a skill set that I want to bulk up a little bit. Um, There's a couple of ways that you could do it from your home if you want to. So whether it's the book, uh, Getting to Yes and, The Art of Business Improv, uh, which is a prescriptive book. It's a Stanford University Press book, so it's baked in the research and the citations. As a prescriptive book, it's a how-to book. It's the textbook for what we do. Also, in 2019, we created an online program called Improvisational Communication. It's on Teachable, and it has worksheets attached to it. If you're really like, I want to, I, so the, the online program was created for people who don't want to go to a classroom. That's, that was the major focus. Not everybody wants to go to a classroom and, you know, going back to Martin Amat, that doesn't mean they shouldn't learn these techniques. It's an opportunity to learn them. And so 
And some people don't want to be on Saturday Night Live either. So it's not necessarily improv for comedy. It's improv for creativity, collaboration, communication, dealing with change. And if you go through the program and choose to download the worksheets, it's not mandatory. No one's going to you know, be on your shoulder there. You will walk out of the program, though, with an action plan, a tangible action plan that says, in your own words, this is I, Gustavo, will walk out of this program with tools and techniques that I can use for communication, collaboration, creativity, change, dealing with some conflict, and ultimately creating a culture, my own culture, to sustain this going forward so that this continues to be part of how I develop as a person and as a leader. So that's improvisational communication on Teachable. Awesome. And how else can people get in touch with you and reach out? Find us at Business Improv, businessimprov.com. Find me on LinkedIn. Come and say hi. Awesome. And uh, well, thank you for that. I am, I'm looking forward to taking some classes and obviously, you know, having future conversations with you, but I really appreciate the time, the energy, like you were, when, when we release this later on YouTube, people are going to see you are so present and like, you're just physically here, even though I'm just seeing you from a screen and I don't usually get that with people like you, you're just right there in the moment. So thank you for that. Ah, well, thank you. You know, it's all that improv training. So uh, I appreciate Gustavo. It's, it's been a pleasure chatting with you and I look forward to future conversations as well. All right. Thank you so much, Bob. 